Hello and welcome to Simple Self-Care by Naturally Randy Kay. This is a podcast dedicated to simplifying the healing journey by aligning your self-care practices with your own inner wisdom and the natural cycles outside and within. Though self-care has become quite the buzzword, it's actually a vital tool that can fit beautifully into your everyday life. Join me as we explore how to create a deep and meaningful relationship with ourself naturally, intentionally, and simply. Hello, friends, and here we are with another episode of Simple Self-Care. And I've got another really powerful conversation to share with you today with Dr. Kelly Brogan, all about how to lovingly care for your mental health and stand up for your health in a world of conflicting information and dysfunctional medical systems. Yeah, we're going to go there today. (laughs) And it's good stuff. It's important. So I think you'll get a lot out of it. But before we get into it, I want to share with you a free event that I'm hosting soon, right here on the interwebs called Trusting Your Inner Wisdom During Uncertain Times. As I get ready to head into maternity leave sometime soon, I've been trying to think of like the most important thing I could think of to teach you as we head into this somewhat intense season of a major election here in the U.S., the holidays coming up, the unknowns of still being in the middle of a pandemic and adding that on top of everything else. It's a lot But the one thing that I keep coming back to is the power of being able to tune into your own inner wisdom and trust and act on what you hear. As I've talked about over and over on this podcast and anywhere I talk about things, (laughs) you are your wisest healer. Only you can really tune into yourself and know what's best and what you need. And because of all of the noise that is going on in the world, it's getting harder and harder to tune in and recognize that part of ourselves, but it's getting more and more important to do so. So I'm teaching a live workshop all about how to quiet the noise, calm the body, and turn up the volume on your inner wisdom so you can navigate this wild time with more confidence and more calm within. So it's coming up quickly here on Wednesday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. Central. And like I said, it's free and we'll probably run an hour and a half or so. And you will get a workbook to have for your reference. And we will breathe and meditate together and do some simple and fun exercises to teach you how to tune in and trust what you hear. If you register and can't make it for some reason, you will have access to the replay for a limited amount of time. And if you are listening to this after the fact, this will be turned into a mini course that you can purchase later. So you can still partake in the goodness, but if you want it for free, please register and join. Now you can head to naturallyrandyk.com slash inner wisdom to learn more and save your spot. And this will also be where you can purchase the course later. I'm very excited about it. I know it's going to be a lot of fun and can be very useful right now. So I hope to see you there. And if this topic is resonating with you, 
you are in luck because Kelly and I dig into it more during our conversation that I'm sharing with you today. Kelly Brogan is a holistic psychiatrist, author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, Own Yourself, and the children's book, A Time for Rain. And she's the co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She is the founder of the online healing program, Vital Mind Reset, and the membership community, Vital Life Project. I first discovered Kelly's work years ago as I was dealing with a pretty big slump of my own depression. And with the help of her protocols and perspective and working with my own doctor and therapist, of course, I have been able to treat my depression naturally and holistically and have more of an understanding of what I need and what my depression is signaling to me when it creeps in. She's become a pretty big name in the health and wellness space and has been very influential in my own healing. So I was kind of nervous to reach out and invite her on. And I honestly wasn't sure she would say yes, but she graciously agreed. And I'm so grateful for all that she shared during our conversation that we recorded a few months ago over the summer. It is worth noting that Kelly's perspectives on mental health and beyond have become a bit controversial. She definitely does not shy away from challenging a lot of schools of thought and mainstream beliefs, but I really resonate with her approach to mental health and the healing process and brings up some very important considerations to ask yourself and consider as you move through your own health and healing. Remember, healing comes in layers. And what Kelly offers is a layer to start experimenting with. All right, take a listen as we chat about how to move through the process of difficult emotions, how to trust yourself as the authority over your body, self-embodiment as a practice, how to know when you are ready for your next level of healing, the role self-care plays in healing chronic issues, how to prove to yourself that your choices matter, why we have a hard time feeling calm and relaxed, and even navigating mental health through postpartum and menopause. So, and there's even more than that. (laughs) So we cover a lot of ground, but it's really important stuff. So you might want to settle in with a notebook and a cup of tea, take some deep breaths and enjoy. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly, so much for taking the time to share with us your wisdom today and being on the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So for those that aren't familiar with your work, um, just give a brief rundown of who you are, what you're about, how it's evolved, uh, and then we'll dig in from there. Yeah. So it's an important um bit of context that I am a conventionally trained uh, psychiatrist and believed so much in the medical model of managing human suffering that I specialized in prescribing psychotropic medication to pregnant and breastfeeding women. And it wasn't until I had my own encounter uh, with a potential chronic uh, disease label and with the Uh, medical system, of course, at which point I was already uh, rather familiar with. This was in my uh, fellowship year, so after my residency, uh, that I uh, was really invited 
to walk uh, the walk, you know, that I had um, sort of participated in, facilitated for so many hundreds of patients at that point. And something inside me just said, no, I, I don't want this. I don't want to take a prescription for the rest of my life. And I know, you know, that there isn't um, an experience of, of vitality, let alone, you know, um, even remission on the other end of, you know, repeated doctor's visits for symptom management. In my case, it was around Hashimoto's thyroiditis, um, an autoimmune condition. And as the universe would have it at that same time, I was um, given a book by a colleague called Anatomy of an Epidemic. And she uh, is a therapist and she just said, you know, what do you think about this? And because I was already uh, considering seeing a naturopath at that time, because I knew what conventional medicine had to offer, I read the book and I uh, never started a patient on prescription medication again. That was back in 2010. Uh, so my practice took a very sharp left turn um, after I learned about the um, inconvenient data that implicates the safety and efficacy of psychiatric medications and also frames them as iatrogenic vectors, meaning that they are actually causing harm and perpetuating what would otherwise be a spontaneously remitting illness as a recidivistic condition that of course then people identify with as a part of themselves. Uh, so I developed um, a practice based on the discontinuation of these medications. And it was really kind of like a biological framework at that point. You know, I had learned um, how I had healed myself uh, from totally physiologic, not psychological or psychospiritual perspective. Um, and I became very interested in the, what I call the pretenders. So these physiologic imbalances that can look psychiatric if you don't know, you know, to look for them. And, you know, it's kind of like you wouldn't want to treat, you know, a blood sugar imbalance with Zoloft. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make good, intelligent medical sense, right? Uh, but it was because I oriented in this way that I um, unwittingly began to learn about the anatomy of the dark night of the soul and what it is to move through all of the uh, repressed emotion, all of the arrested personal development, and all of, and to, to really tr transform um, one's own perspective on the essence of identity. You know, like, who am I really? Um, these are the kinds of questions I would find my patients asking as they came off of medication, um, often for the first time in their entire lives, and in the setting of a lot of um, symptoms, none of which were the original symptoms that they took medication for. Uh, and that's how I began to learn about the so-called discontinuation syndrome, uh, euphemistically referred to as such by the medical establishment, but of course is a frank chemical withdrawal uh, from what I believe to be the most uh, habit-forming medications, uh, actually substances on the planet. And um, so it was in that setting that of course, I entered into the realm of this kind of spiritual awakening myself and over the past 10 years have, I think I'm on my like third rebirth at this point, um, you know, and it was funny because I just re-recorded the, the videos for my online program uh, because I hadn't recorded, it, it had been what, like four years or something. And my uh, community manager was saying to me, she was looking at the kind of old videos and the new ones. And she said, you, you literally look like a different human being. 
literally like not even like, Oh, that was her with that hair, <laughs> you know, and that's right. her now. <laughs> and, uh, and I've seen that with so many of the women that I've worked with that there is, um, there's a way in which the body expresses the soul. And as you come more and more into alignment, which involves reclaiming the parts of you that you thought you had to hide um, and transforming them into uh, an integrated whole, you know, you begin to look more like yourself. And it's not, um, you know, a cosmetic thing or an aesthetic thing. Uh, it's, it's part of the mystery of, you know, what it is to, to, to be yourself. And that's um, really become kind of the focus of, of my own teachings around empowerment uh, and personal reclamation. I love it. Yeah, part of um, why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast is I was introduced to your work, I think through another podcast. I don't even remember which one it was, <laughs> but I was going through my own journey of depression and I'm, I've been very vocal about it on the podcast and have done um, and have used medication off and on throughout my life. And the conclusion I always came back to is while for a short period of time, it helped me get a hold of what was going on over time, my body and the more in tune I became with my body, it, it had these conflicting messages of like, this is not your long-term thing. And and there's just deeper work that kept coming up that actually was way more effective than any of the traditional treatments that I was going through. But there wasn't any education about that. Like in as a teenager, I got labeled with clinical depression because it ran in my family. And the doctor that I barely knew gave me a questionnaire. And that was like 10 questions long. And as like a 14-year-old was like, you've got depression, kid, see you later, you know, which was very confusing. Um, and so when I heard you and dug into your work, I was like, oh, there's actually a medical professional that's teaching what I've, my body's been trying to tell me, but not trusting because of the education that was out there. So I'm curious about your feelings about having a mental illness diagnosis, because that's probably been on some terms, like having a diagnosis or a label for something can provide clarity. But I feel like with mental health, anytime someone has labeled me with a specific type of depression or mental health illness, it has sent me down the rabbit hole of not and not productive and me being like, I, I don't think that's it. <laughs> and my favorite therapists are, have been the ones that, that don't do that. So I'm curious, um, when do you think it can help or what do you think the dangers are in that kind of labeling? Yeah. So my perspective is that whatever decisions you make, whatever choices you make, even if they are seemingly wrong uh, with hindsight 2020, were absolutely right for you at the time. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, addictions, you know, it includes all manner of, of wrong paths that we might walk down. Those choices work while we are engaging them. That's why we engage them and continue to choose every single day. You know, when you open that prescription bottle and you did it on a Tuesday and then you did it again on a Wednesday, it's because it worked for you on a Tuesday and then it worked on the Wednesday and then it worked on the Thursday. And then you get to, you know, one day at some point where there's a rattling in the cage that says, you know, it asks that question, who am I really? 
uh, because I have colluded in an understanding of myself as being fundamentally broken and sick. And not only that, uh, but irreparably so, because in the conventional model, there is no cure, right? There is no um, true remission. There is no moment where you are, I mean, not that this never happens, but it's not built into the training, I'll say, um, that you would ever be liberated you know, from the model and left to explore your life with your own um, sensibilities as the you know, guiding um, navigational force. So what you, what you allude to is very powerful and, and I often reference it because I've heard it so many times, which is that when you carry this programming, which by the way, we all do, I believe, um, that you're not okay, right? Like you're not actually um, whole, you're not actually lovable. Um, that there's a lot of shameful aspects to you. And when you're not good at hiding those, right, from yourself, then you walk around with this belief that something is wrong with you. And when you are suffering and struggling and you live in a society that has absolutely no cultural context to hold the process of moving through difficult emotions to discover their yield, Literally, we have, we have no context for that. Everything that feels bad is bad. That's the American way. And so we don't have a, uh, an understanding that we need to be initiated to adulthood, potentially starting in adolescence, right? Because most of the 50 plus year old women I have worked with, you know, to come off of one, two, three, four, five medications they've been on for decades, were started on these medications in their teen and early 20s. 20s, right? So, you know, whether it was a breakup in college that then resulted in decades of polypharmacy, most of that kind of stirring um, of the kind of inner self that has been rejected by the dominant caregivers starts in adolescence. And if we had a means of introducing, you know, a, a teen's consciousness to their own fear mechanisms so that they could learn how to work with that and to understand that they are something that is not that fear. There's something deep, there's a core inside that is them that has nothing to do with their personality, their behavior or their emotions, right? How do you meet that? You have to move through and see that you're still alive on the other side of something you, know, you thought was gonna kill you. Right? But we don't have, you know, we don't, we don't go on vision quests. We don't um, encourage, you know, natural childbirth. We don't have, um, you know, gender-based holdings of these ceremonial rituals that help us to see that when we are supported, we can grow way bigger than we imagined. So we walk around with this hidden belief that something is, is incomplete and broken about us. So when we walk into a doctor's office and they say, oh, you know what? You're right. You are sick there's an ICD-10 code for what you have. There's a validation that's experienced. That's very profound. You feel seen and you feel understood for your suffering. And then of course you're promised relief. Who doesn't want relief? It's the only logical course of action given this you know, limited perspective that, that one would take medication. Uh, given, you know, also the authority that we have socioculturally vested in the priesthood of conventional medicine, right? So literally the costume, the language, you know, all of the um, ritualistic elements of presenting to a doctor's office, we imagine to be secular and they're anything but, 
which is why one of my great advocacies in this time has been to reframe medicine as a belief system, right? And that's the term for that is, is scientism, right? To, to, to deeply understand that there is no such thing as the objective, you know, dominant orthodoxy around which we should also, you know, submit our uh, personal understandings. No, that is one belief system. And guess what? There are many others. And the way that I know that is because I've worked with so many people, myself included, who have got, gone from one belief system to another and had a completely different understanding of themselves, completely different experience of their symptoms, and in a, a revolutionized um, orientation toward health and, and disease. Right. So when you're in that belief system that says something's broken about me, my brain chemistry is off because, of course, you've been brainwashed by directed consumer advertising, you know, for for how many years of your life to to imagine that we understand that mental illness is a disease that's validated, that it has a corresponding physiology like a chemical imbalance or a serotonin deficiency, and that we know what to do for it, which are these are all myths, right? The tenets of this religiosity. When you enter into that, not even knowing that you are, of course, not even knowing that you have another choice, um, it feels good for a bit, right? But what you don't recognize at that time, from my perspective, is that ultimately you are growing your experience of Stock what's referred to as Stockholm Syndrome, which is identifying with the aggressor, right? You disavow your perceptions that there is something fundamentally, potentially abusive about this model you disavow your five senses, right? You, you say, I don't know whether I'm well. I have to check with my doctor to see whether I'm well or what's wrong or, or what's actually going on. I don't have the capacity to know that. Only the doctor can know what's actually going on with me. No, actually only you can know. Literally only you can know. And this includes lab tests and elaborate investigations about your physiology in the end. In my opinion, all of that is ritual because you already know what you need to know deep down inside and you already even know what to do. But to, how do you liberate that impulse? That's where and how I've discovered it can only really happen, from my biased perspective, it can only really happen when you clear the slate and your body gets quiet enough for you to start to experience your body and it's, um, it's languaging, right? The dialect. Of, of your body. How does your body tell you what's going on and how do you understand it? That is a process that needs to be engaged and then, and then it's a gift that needs to be re reclaimed. So when that system stops working for you, it's usually because either you feel worse than you did when you presented to it, right? So you have multiple side effects, you're not actually doing better. And that short period of, you know, kind of numbing right, which is what you said you needed to kind of get your feet under you, right? That, that, that period of induced apathy, which is what many people describe, they use the word numb, numb emotionally, you know, numbing, um, that desensitizes you to your rightful sensitivity. Because it's a big premise of, of, you know, my perspective is that whatever symptoms you're having are because you are rightfully sensitive to something that is out of balance in your life. Now, whether that's your diet or a relationship or your job or the toxic exposures you're experiencing or where you're living or your, the absence of community in your life, whatever it is, your symptoms are telling you something important. They are not random and they're not because you are weak or vulnerable and you know, 
didn't know better how to be a human in the world. No, your symptoms are there for a reason. Now, if your symptoms are very difficult to, to, to mute them to some extent, might feel adaptive, right? If you're a super anxious person and you have two shots of vodka every night, would we argue that that wouldn't help a little bit? Yeah. Would we argue that if it does help, it's an indication that you have an alcohol deficiency or some kind of, you know, ethanol imbalance? No. We would say, oh, it was adaptive for you. And your friend, you know, she gets more anxious when she drinks or she falls asleep or whatever. It doesn't work for her, right? So that's why we have these heterogeneous responses to these medications, mostly because we have really no idea how they are having their impact. However, they are having an impact. They're having an effect, but let us not believe that that is in any way remediating, resolving, or correcting anything that's wrong with you, right? So it's a drug-based effect. So when you might consider leaving that system is when either the side effects are too significant, the effect is not very impressive, or what is pretty common in, in my experience, you enter into your you know, late 30s, early 40s, and your soul starts to rattle the cage. And inexplicably, like you said, you have this intuitive sort of like sense that there's another way, a better way, or there's more to the story than you've been told. And you're gonna find out on your own. And that's the beginning of, you know, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, right? Where you strike out into the wilderness because you can't not, and you're going to just deal with whatever comes. So almost 100% of the women I work with in my practice have already decided what they know to be true. And all that I do literally is because I am a former member of the priesthood, right? Is I anoint their vision. They imagine that they need permission from someone to start their, their you know, self-initiation process. And I play that part. And I say, you know what? You're right. And by the way, here's, I don't know, a couple hundred scientific references you know, to support your intuition. Whether you need them or not, sometimes because of the ways we've been you know, enculturated, it does help to know that there is scientific evidence not only to, to indict the conventional model, but then also to support the relevance of the endocrine system, of the gastrointestinal system, of the immune system, even of the brain, you know, and how do we interact with that? Oh, well, here's also evidence of how, you know, nutrition, um, mitochondrial healing, you know, all of the, the different measures of um, inflammatory markers. Here's how and why what we might do in terms of lifestyle change is likely to help you with no side effects, only side benefits for a fraction of the cost and in a way that you are totally controlling. Right. And, and so that's why I think it's been important that, you know, my like one month approach to to kind of clearing the slate doesn't involve anything that you can't do by yourself. No specialists necessary, no supplements necessary. Right. And, and if you can grow your own food, even better. Right. So it's um, it's a process of shifting the locus of control from without to within. And that process is a multi, multi year process. However, it begins with that spark um, that is ultimately confirmed when, you know, you find a resource, maybe like one of my books or many of my colleagues who speak the exact same language, um, or you go back into ancient, um, you know, forms of, of healing, Ayurveda or Chinese medicine that all speak to the wisdom of the body's expression. Uh, and you feel, oh, 
maybe I'm not as messed up as I thought, right? And, and then it kind of evolves and maybe at some point you can say, wow, maybe I was told, it's like a gas, ultimate gaslighting, right? Maybe I was told that some, exactly what I was told was wrong with me is actually the seat of my power and my gift. And that's how inverted uh, this paradigm is. And, you know, I used to uh, believe that it was just kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of people bumbling around, doing the best they can, because that's what I was, you know, when I was a part of that system. And now I have a very different understanding of the design, the strategy, and the intention behind uh, disabusing the average citizen of their innate power and what that affords a very small uh, controlling elite uh, to, you know, to, to command in terms of the infrastructure and architecture of a global population that understands themselves to be fundamentally dependent on uh, some other systems, some other powers that be in order to understand how to take basic care of themselves, right? So if you look at the tenets of, of what we might describe as holistic self-care, none of those are represented in media. None of those are represented in dominant medical culture, literally none of them. The understanding of the immune system is limited to the most preschool level psychology of you know, warfare, consciousness, right? Bad out there, stay away from bad, cover up self so bad doesn't get in. Like literally it is in no way um, founded in the most elemental scientific tenets, let alone reflective of a complexity that most of us understand once we begin to research the non-industry funded science and what it, what it means to interact with illness uh, from a non-victim perspective. Yes. <laughs> That's a, a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I like it. Up. There's so many things where I'm like, oh yeah, let's talk about that. Right. We could like have a podcast on like every little aspect. That is a big aspect. Um, but one thing um, I just keep thinking about, as you say this, my own experience, because that's definitely the path that I went on. And one of the biggest turning points with my depression is that I love it. Like, I love this part of myself mm. because it has all the answers. Like, mm. it's the one, like, when these symptoms show up is a warning sign or a love note from my body that something else is off. And what I learned from doing your one month program with my diet is um, that those were actually causing that what I was putting in my body was creating a lot of the anxiety and my inability to listen to my body. And I've become very sensitive to, I've always been sensitive to food. I've always had digestion issues, but no doctor could tell me what that was about and whatever. I just ignored it and dealt with being in pain. And then I started to notice that connection between my digestion and my mood and, um, and my, my go-to thing when I'm with those depression symptoms creep in is what have I eaten today? Like, what am I putting in my body that's causing this stress response? And how can I tell my body that it's safe so we can go on the journey together of what's right. 
off. And so I'm curious, um, more insights on how people can uh, get out of that fear and move into the trust. And I, I love how you talk about self-care because one of my missions with this podcast and beyond is teaching it as the gateway to your inner wisdom. It's not just something that you do, something fluffy that you do. This is where the real like healing happens is when we can, this is how we cultivate that relationship with ourselves that can make these empowered decisions. And um, so when I've read it in your books, I'm like, yes, <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. So, um, so can you share your experience with that? And and maybe some starting points for us to start to transition from fear and doubt into that deeper trust. Cause that's, it's a difficult muscle to build. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm working on it every day, a decade into this process, you know, and, and so many of my friends and colleagues who um, have been walking, you know, this path for some time I would agree. It's, it's a practice, right? So this concept of there being some, destination, some oasis of eternal okayness uh, is, is not helpful, right? It's actually a defeating perspective. It's very linear and it sets you up for um, daily comparison to your sort of uh, stated goal. And that's why this concept of self-embodiment as a practice is very liberating because you're just doing what you can do when you can do it. And, you know, when I started out on this path, I had a lot of, you know, fire raging and my sword aloft. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to stand between every single person who heads to CVS with their prescriptions. I'm going to tell them the truth and their, you know, pharma is going to tumble to the ground. Right. And over time, of course, I've matured in that perspective to understand, no, actually, when you are ready, it feels like a relief to move in the direction of change. And when you're not ready, there is the same uh, element of force being applied that underpins the control-based psychology that gets us into the pharma mindset to begin with, right? So you're not ready until the second you're ready right? The second before you're not ready and, and no one can force it. No one can coerce it. And if you push yourself, if you force yourself to walk down this path before you're ready, trust me, I have seen it, it directly in clinical practice. It is not pretty. Um, and so, so that's why, you know, there is a lot of self-honesty um, that has to precede entering into um, you know, the, the vortex that, that will ultimately pull you to your deepest self away from a system that, that you have been trained to believe is here to take care of you, right? So a lot of what I focus on is the, the personal reparenting that has to happen, right? Like if we have parentified the medical system, which is so natural to do that I would wager everyone does it, uh, because we are not initiated to our sovereign adult selves, then you are going to have to understand what it is psycho-emotionally to live without parents. Literally, like your parents have to die, whether they're dead or alive in, in real life. 
in order for you to move through the mourning, the grief, the fear, the terror of your child self that has been programmed to believe that you too will die if you don't have the protection of those parents. So there's a, a huge psychological evolution that underpins the very simple thing I'm about to say, which is that when you start with the low hanging fruit of physiologic healing, everything that comes afterward is easier. Right. So when you start with resolving blood sugar imbalance, decreasing inflammation, increasing nutrient density of your food, eliminating toxicant exposures, and becoming generally conscious of the choices you're making every day, your brain fog diminishes, your hair stops falling out, your stomach stops hurting, you stop pooping once a month, <laughs> you know, you your gas resolves, your joint pain stops, your rashes and acne are eliminated, you lose those 10 pounds that seem to like stick to your belly for the past, you know, eight years. And suddenly your body becomes the indicator of what direction to go in next, right? So it says, nope, not here, you know, lunch, that was a no-go, you know? Or it says, ooh, I wanna learn more about essential oils. And your body will literally tell you that. It stops being a mind-based thing because the healing of the mind takes a lot of time. The healing of the body, in my experience, far less so, right? So the, the, our, our minds have been literally warped into um, a conditioned control-based response. So when you describe the fear, the emotion is the emotion. It's just an emotion. It's just energy in motion. That's all it is, right? It's your mind that turns it into an imperative for action. Your mind says this emotion could equal your death. And ultimately all emotions relate to our um, evolving dynamic with death, I think, you know? And, and, and so it's your mind that says do something but the emotion doesn't say do something. The emotion just wants to be. And, and anyone who has any experience feeling, which is actually not many of us, um, and it, it wasn't even myself until pretty recently in my life, anyone who has any experience feeling knows that if you literally just let an emotion be, now for, for each of us, that's gonna mean something different, right? So for me, that might be you know, dancing, or, or journaling, or screaming into a pillow, or, you know, crying with a friend. Um, it could be sitting in, in total silence for 40 minutes. It's going to mean something different for each of us. But if you develop a practice of, of feeling the discomfort of an emotion, right? Shame, rage, grief, um, fear, and allowing it to be without having to fix it immediately or do anything to make it go away. And in fact, quite the opposite, doing something to bring it more out right? More to the surface, more to the light of your awareness. You'll find it alchemizes pretty quickly, sometimes in the space of minutes. So you could go on fighting and struggling with an emotion and trying to keep it, you know, under wraps for months and months and months. But if you carve out the space and give it permission to be, you can literally see it transform into the extent that you actually feel something like bliss or laughter or something totally antithetical to what you imagine is, is a huge submerged iceberg of hell within you in the, in the space of a couple of minutes. But you must train your mind. So, so how do you do that? It's, it's the most ancient 
practice there is. It's a contemplative practice. It's meditation. It's stress response, you know, management, whatever you want to call it, prayer. Um, and that takes time because healing the, the, the nervous system so that you can watch what's going on without being limbically subsumed into the emergency every single time you feel something that approximates fear or an alarm response, that takes practice. That is so much harder to do when your blood sugar is unstable, your thyroid is you know, out to lunch, and you have only ever lived your life in adult fight or flight. It's, it's maybe even not possible. You know, it, it may even be part of the, the you know, vagal uh, branches of the nervous system that the awareness, witness consciousness is only made available when there is at least um, reduced level of the, you know, fear response. So this very elaborate ongoing lifetime process begins in a very humble way um, with these little choices that you make. And, you know, pr primarily around self-care every single day, you know, what are you, what are you going to do for your body right when you wake up? What are you going to put in your mouth when it, you pick up your first glass? You know, what are you going to put in your mouth for breakfast? You know, what kind of mattress are you going to sleep on? You know, what kind of water are you going to drink? All of these simple choices, they begin to not only have direct physiologic impact, but then psychologically, you're telling yourself a different story because you're saying my choices matter. And, and you're going to begin to see the proving of that so that it's not just an intellectual construct you're ingesting from on high, you know, including from a book of mine or whatever. It's, it's a lived experience where you prove to yourself, they call it N of one medicine, one person study, right? You're the, you're the subject that this matters. And as you have little pixelated experiences that collect, that send your psyche that message, Ultimately, you understand, wow, this is on me. It doesn't mean you can't get support or guidance, but it does mean that ultimately only you know. So how are you going to get clear enough uh, to, to read that, to become your own doctor you know, and, and accountability partner? It begins, I think, with, you know, with the simple steps of the ritualized self-care, the chopping wood, carrying water. I love that. I think there's... There's a lot of confusion I hear from my community and I've been there as well is, well, how do I love myself? How do I practice self-love? How do I feel like I'm worthy enough for to take the time and all of that? And it really comes down to what you're saying of you just start doing something and whatever that looks like for you, given your situation and it creates this awareness and this um, it's a tangible way of showing self-love that can then translate into feeling it on a deeper authentic level, or even just bringing it out of you because it, I believe it's already there. It's just bringing it out in these actions. And so it's easy to brush these humble things off, but the ongoing effects of them are, are very profound and can lead to the, the deeper healing that we want to do. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, programming around you can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be different. Like for me, it's mostly you can't rest, right? Not necessarily literally, but figuratively, right? Like 
you must be productive in order to be worthy. You must help other people in order to be lovable. You must be busy in order to be perceived as legitimate or intelligent or, you know. So for me, the, the you can't is, you know, spend a Tuesday at the beach or, you know, cancel a, a, a podcast interview <laughs> or, because I did that literally for the first time in my entire career, like two months ago. Um, <laughs> you can't take a day off. You can't sit around and look out the window and do nothing when you could be reading eight medical journal articles or a book or writing, you know, whatever. But for somebody else that you can't might be more action oriented, right? Like maybe if they're, they're drowning in the lethargy of their own inertia, maybe the you can't is, you know, take a step in the direction of your, your deepest longing, right? Whether that's sending somebody an email or applying for a job or writing, you know, a, a blog or whatever, or, or you, you can't handle, um, you know, taking a dance class because you're already so busy. So if you look where the you can'ts are in your life and you commit to moving through the discomfort, just as a trial, see, you know, moving through the discomfort of that um, programming, then you begin to accumulate experiences where you find out not only are you still you on the other side, even when your identity has been shuffled like this, but you actually will likely begin to attract evidence that, that really defies your understanding of who it is that you are, since you remained who you are, even now doing different things. Um, and that is, in many ways, how, how you can walk the walk of self-care before you actually feel anything. You know, like for me to take hours of my day to, to focus on self-care early on in my process when I was working 100 hours a week, you know, in the hospital and, and in private practice, felt like a radical act of disruption to my priority scale. And I, I do think that that disruptive energy is part of what, even in terms of neuroplasticity, makes way for new, you know, for new, new ski tracks to be, um, dredge down the, the slope, you know, otherwise we fall into the same ones over and over again. And so you have that power at any given moment. It's your power of choice, right? What are you going to put your attention toward? Only you are in charge of that. And, and, and when we believe otherwise, it's that victim narrative that says, oh, we have to do this. I have to do this. No, no, you have a choice always, even if the choice is just in how you're narrating what's happening right? The story you're telling yourself about it can still be an empowered story. There is a different neurobiology to the posture of personal empowerment and personal responsibility than there is to the helplessness of the victim story. And, you know, my victim stories crop up every single day. In fact, every time I feel bad in myself or in my body, there is always a victim story there. A poor me, not, this isn't fair. I don't like this. Why is this happening to me kind of a story? And so how can I begin to recruit back my power of choice and say, you know what? I can give this less attention, right? I was just saying to my husband earlier um, that sometimes even social media is like that, right? Like, you know, if, if <laughs> it's like you put your head in a box, right? And there's like all hornets inside and it's like hell. And then you can just like take your head out of the box, look around and be like, no, actually everything is fine. <laughs> I, I did that. I chose, you know, to, to do that. 
Um, and so awakening to all of these little areas where we participate in our own struggle and suffering, and that's fine. I believe we're meant to do that. We came here maybe even to feel these feelings. So it's not a problem. But when, you, when you're done feeling them, you're, you're in charge of that process, right? You're, you can liberate them into different energetic signatures. You can begin to focus your attention elsewhere. You can begin to make choices that send a totally different message that is diametrically opposed to the victim messaging. And you can see how does it feel? Because what I find is that when we feel these more expansive feelings, joy or bliss, contentness, calm, that was an extremely difficult thing. It still is for me to feel calm. It's very uncomfortable. That's weird, right? Nobody warns us about that because we were forever chasing, chasing that experience of feeling good and feeling okay. But then sometimes when we get there, we have literally no um, psychological framework to embrace it or experience it. And it feels unsafe to be there because our nervous system isn't trained for vigilance. And so we, it's almost like we need to be warned that there might be some backsliding or self-sabotage simply because getting to that space where we can experience expansion rather than contraction, um, we've been programmed to imagine that that's dangerous. So that's also why it's a process and why that first time when the light peaks in, when it hasn't been there in a while, you know, to, to work with self-soothing in that moment and say, you can handle this. It might not be intuitive to do that, but it's often very necessary. And that's why, you know, graduating from being a patient feels like the best day of somebody's life. Oh my God, I'll never see a doctor again, kind of a thing. But in fact, it can be very, very scary. Um, and sometimes that's why, you know, people might seek the, the hallowed halls of conventional medicine, even after they've liberated themselves. Why would anybody do that? They already know what to do and how to take care of themselves. Well, because it takes a growing strength to be able to even experience freedom as something other than scary, you know, and look at how even on a global scale right now, we are sacrificing our freedoms for the illusion of safety. That illusion of safety is so baked in to our collective consciousness that we will literally ask for our own enslavement and imprisonment. We will demand it sometimes, in fact. And that's mostly because we have been so programmed to imagine that we are helpless, we will be lost, and we will ultimately die a painful death if we are left to our own devices. But it's, it's just not true. And that's why I've become a big believer in like-minded community um, to support the, um, the, the knowing that we have this personal power that is beyond anything we literally can conceive of. Literally, we, we, we can't even go there yet in our, in our mind's eye and imagination. Um, so we need the help of others to hold that field strong because otherwise it can be very, very um, tempting in our mercenary atomized you know, psychology to say, well, no, I can't handle it. I'm out of here. You know, I'm going back to um, you know, mommy medicine and daddy government. Uh, I, I do think that's the exciting aspect of, of what's happening right now on the planet is that we may actually be um, invited to graduate beyond all of these authoritarian, actually totalitarian at this point, um, power structures and systems that we have empowered. And once we understand what it would look like to individually and then collectively withdraw our power, 
some incredible shifts that we we probably you know are beyond our wildest dreams uh, could be happening and coming to us in in our lifetime and, and certainly our children's lifetime yeah i definitely have a sense of something like that brewing if we choose to continue to feel empowered within our bodies and do this healing within and there's just a lot of potential for this all to turn into something very culture shifting and life altering for the future. So one last thing before, um, cause we need to wrap up here and I'm great, very grateful for your time, but I guess it's been on my mind a lot lately and a lot of the women that I work with as I specialize in women's health. And it seems like I have a very good understanding and there's a lot of care around mental health, depression, anxiety, but when it comes to postpartum depression and moving into that realm along the women's life cycle, um, is there anything else to say about postpartum? And this is kind of a selfish question because I'm pregnant for the first time and that's a, that's a, I don't have fear. I have some fear brewing around that just because of what I hear from my doctors and other women that have gone through it. Is there a different way of looking at Mm. prenatal and postpartum depression and the changes that can come within us? Even my clients that go through menopause fear that so much um, that you can say in a couple of minutes. um, (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) But do your principles of healing and, and what you've written about apply to the scenario or, um, cause it just seems like its own thing. Yeah. So when we look through the lens of symptoms are an invitation, it's never harder to harness that mindset than in pregnancy and postpartum because the other oriented psychology of I'm only valuable if I take care of somebody else. In this case, it's your fetus or your newborn is invoked to your own detriment, right? So the culture of medicalized pregnancy and childbirth um, and newborn infant care um, has been co-created by women who have disavowed their personal authority and a system that would seek to capture the very initiatory right that I referenced earlier, and perhaps the only one that's left in our culture. And there's a reason. It's not an accident. And part of the reason is because when you teach a woman that she can not only not trust her body, but that she has to rely on the edifice of, you know, scientism and medical monotheism in order to navigate something that is completely inbuilt to the extent that she needs literally no one, not even a midwife or a doula, no one. And there's an entire movement the world over, you know, called free birthing where women evidence this every day. When you teach her that she cannot do this and she has to be afraid because it's for the good of her child, you have won her. You own her for life. And you know, I participated directly in a system, in the system, right? Because I worked with, by my specialty, pregnant and postpartum women. 
And I would never have imagined that would make any sense. I came from the, the, the feminist consciousness that said, why would you experience pain and discomfort when you don't have to? Where I thought elective epidurals made, and, and even um, C-sections made total sense. But that's because I couldn't see behind the veil to what the cost really was. And when you're just looking at medical risks and benefits, actually when it comes to obstetrics, only 30% of it is even evidence-based. So even from through that lens, when you're just looking at risks and benefits, and by the way, I had a natural birth in a birthing center for my first pregnancy, simply because of the scientific evidence. Not because I cared about my personal empowerment or reclaiming my femininity or keeping it from the man, none of that. Literally, I went to the evidence, which I was wont to do at that time because I was still in the system, it wasn't until 10 months postpartum my first pregnancy that any of this came to me, right? I had a natural birth because I knew the science, period. And I looked at episiotomy and fetal monitoring and ultrasound and C-section. And that's when I looked at the Hep B vaccine, which is the first medical decision a, a mother really has to make for her, her newborn. And I said, you know what? Here's, here's what my understanding of the science is. And actually my midwife, who was more like a medwife at the time, didn't even know the science that I knew. And that's when I began to lose really faith and to feel like, you know what, I can navigate this. But not every woman navigating has, you know, the comfort with pubmed.gov that I, you know, had at the time. So, so how, do, how do we figure this whole thing out? Is, are the risks worth taking? Right? That is the hallmark psychology of the, the capture process that the medical system engages over and over and over again. And it starts with pregnancy, it then goes to childbirth, then it goes to the vaccination schedule and all of the ways in which the medical system tells you, you don't know, we know. You're not in charge, we're in charge. The body has not only no wisdom, but is dangerous without pharma, right? These are this kind of like underpinning um, messages. So, you know, I, I believe that when you struggle in pregnancy and postpartum from you know, a symptom standpoint, it is extremely meaningful. And one of the inconvenient messages may be, you're not supposed to be doing this alone, right? When, when I practiced in Manhattan, 100% of the women who came in postpartum to my practice were spending copious amounts of time with their newborns by themselves. In human history, that has never ever happened. Never would a woman be alone with a baby. That would be literally the sign that your entire tribe is dead and that this is a time to recruit every homeostatic mechanism physiologically embedded within you for a stress response. It's time to flee, right? That's, that's the, this is the, the context of what we're talking about. It is not normal to raise a baby that way. So why would it feel normal, right? So, so this is just like a little sliver of how to reframe some of the symptoms that people experience. And I still advocate for beginning with the physiology, right? As somebody who developed postpartum thyroiditis, I know it's a huge player. This may not be a, you know, a cultural community-based issue for you. It may simply be that you have you know, a B12 deficiency or whatever. So let's start with the basics. However, always bear that in mind. Symptoms are not random. They are meaningful message from you to you about you, you know, and, and I'll leave on, on 
the note that perhaps the most controversial article I've ever written, and I've written a couple, <laughs> um, is on the subject of home birth. And this article has literally invited death threats um, to my door because it is, it cuts that much to the core of how important it might be for women to understand this issue in time, right? I didn't understand it in time. I wish that somebody had told me about this, you know, before when I was in my first pregnancy, but I didn't surround myself, you know, with that information or with people who might. And, you know, this article I've been told um, has been responsible for probably at this point, somewhere upwards of like 20 um, first time home births, right? So, Nulliparous home births is very rare uh, in, in this country and probably elsewhere. Um, so there's something in the information therein that seems to, again, as we said in the beginning, I'm not teaching or informing really anything. I'm unlocking, perhaps, um, and emboldening a native perception that already exists, right? So, so if you read this information and it, it feels like, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me, you already knew it. <laughs> you already knew it. And, and, and this is just kind of a tool for, for validation. But it is something I feel obviously very passionately about because you don't get a do-over, you know? Like that was that birth. Only one for the a whole lifetime you live is, is that birth experience. So it is um, one of the most important topics to um, devote every aspect of your energy to, to breaking down assumptions Assume nothing. Start with fresh eyes. And if it's your, you know, inclination, tap in to um, communities and, and teachers and healers and ancient wisdom around what this really means. Because I believe that the natural birth is, and in specifically in a home setting, is the, the only real initiation to a woman's sovereign self that exists and not everybody you know has that opportunity and women who have babies and don't have babies don't have that opportunity still it's not it's not claimed or taken and other opportunities arise in fact that's what i find you know the discontinuation of psychiatric medications happens to be a ritual for initiation to self and it happens to look a lot like the childbirth process um in in my experience i've written about that extensively so your life will give you other opportunities if this one passes you by but the worst feeling is like, oh, I wish I'd known that. You know, it's just a terrible feeling. If you can avoid it, great. If not, when you know, you know, as Maya Angelou says, you know, when when you know better, you do better. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm getting all <laughs> pregnant over here. <laughs> Tears swelling. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to the extra time to answer that and. Um, again, all of these things we touched on could be its own thing. So I highly recommend listeners if this is resonating, resonating with you or sparking some curiosity to check out Kelly Brogan's work, um, your two books that I'll link to, and you have your online program. Anything else you want to share about that and how we can find you and support you? Yeah, that sounds like it. And if it's of interest, I'll, I'll make sure you have the, the link to that blog and you oh know, yeah. We always we always find the information we're ready for. I do believe that and and even with all of the censorship efforts, there's some some way somehow that it'll get to you exactly what you need uh when you need it. Awesome. Well, thank you Kelly. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host Randy K. 
a holistic health practitioner and educator that has been helping people heal through bodywork, therapeutic yoga, and self-care coaching for over a decade. My mission is to help people simplify the healing journey by amplifying their own inner wisdom and teaching seasonal self-care practices. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or post it on social media. And if you do that, please tag me so I can see it and connect with you that way at Naturally Randy K. You can also commune with me via email if you sign up for my weekly-ish newsletter, The Simple Letters. You can sign up at naturallyrandyk.com slash newsletter. That's naturally, R-A-N-D-I-K-A-Y dot com slash newsletter. And hearing from you in some way totally makes my life and I always make sure to personally respond. And be sure to join me next time as the self-care conversation continues. Until we meet again, take good care and enjoy the journey.